0: You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall Editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM
1: Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show ladies and gentlemen I'm Wendell Hussey and joining me today are the newspaper editors Clancy Overell and Errol Parker How are you?
2: I'm always good Wendell, how are you mate?
1: Fighting fit, feeling very good. Clancy, you are all right? I'm all right, mate. I'm excited for this new project. Yeah, trying to wrap our head around politics. Now, if you listened to our episode a couple of weeks ago, you would be aware of the fact that we here at the Batuta Advocate are of the opinion that the federal election is well and truly underway, the campaign for it, that is.
0: Indeed, Wendell, and what better way to announce that than with the guest we had on two weeks ago for episode 195 in the shape of Channel 9's Charles Croucher, the plus-size male model from Maitland. He's a true mastermind of both voter behavior and political predictions.
2: Yes, we're all big fans of the Crouch out here in the Channel country, and as you can imagine with the federal election set to be called, in my opinion, in the next few weeks, The Batuta Advocate are in no way finished with analysing the state
1: of Australian politics. And it's not because we're political nerds, it's because we're journalists. Journalists that have realised that the nation will be watching this upcoming election closer than probably any election in recent memory, or any that I can remember, but I am quite young.
2: Yes, because most of you will agree in hindsight, especially you, Wendell, the 2019 election between Scotty and Shorten was hardly a sliding doors moment for either of them. It was an election fought on, I think, tax policy and the culture wars with a bit of climate change and family values thrown in for good measure. By far, one of the most boring elections in recent
1: history. Still not sure what franking credits are. Absolutely.
0: There wasn't even any dog whistling on refugees or dull bludgers. There was absolutely nothing on the table that really got the blood pumping other than the... uh, The scare campaigns that retirees were going to lose their nest eggs. Labor were pushing to tax the wealthy boomers to pay for other shit, and liberals were saying they weren't going to tax wealthy boomers to pay for other shit. And it turns out these wealthy boomers make up quite a large number of Australian voters, enough to sway an election comfortably in the favour of Scott Morrison.
2: Yes, and I'm sure Bill Shorten's former attack dog, former Shadow Treasurer Chris the Beard Bowen, has lost a lot of sleep over his comments. You know, he's, he's, he was the clanger the man for the Labor Party in the last election. Like, he went on radio and said, if you don't like our policies, don't vote for us, because uh, a lot of Australians took that uh, advice and they
0: didn't uh, vote for the Labor Party. Not the smartest thing for no, a politician telling people not, not to vote no. for you. Yeah, he was a bit confident and, a bit too uh, honest. and it blew, blew up in his face. As you've probably all noticed, no one is going into the 2020 election as confident as Labor were in 2019 because one thing we've learned from Trump's election, Boris's election, Morrison's election and most recently Joe Biden's election is that the media, the bookies and the politicians themselves don't know shit. We don't know who wins this thing until the night. But what is different this time around is that the stakes are higher and they're
2: higher because the nation is hurting. Not even a year after Scott Morrison was elected, we all watched millions and millions of acres burn to the ground in record breaking bushfires. It was a deeply traumatic moment in our history that, you know, hung over the Prime Minister's head for years. Mm. Yeah. Seemed
1: like a long time back then.
2: That was until a couple of people in a Chinese wet market started to uh, get a scratchy throat up there in Wuhan in early 2020.
1: Just a couple of years ago, yeah, we had the black summer, the black plague of COVID-19 and every variant of it that keeps making its way onto our shores. And on top of everything, we have this very testy relationship with our Asian neighbours in China, as you just mentioned, Errol. The world's next economic superpower is well and truly emerging and they're not having a bar of any of our shit.
0: A lot of this stuff couldn't have really been predicted by Morrison when he stood up and declared how good's Australia on the eve of the 2019 federal election and the public have always acknowledged that all of this shit just landed in his lap. He didn't want any of this but he is starting to cop a lot of flack for how he has handled each disaster as they arrive. Hawaii was not a good look We can all attest to that. We can all agree on that. Our vaccine rollout was one of the worst in the world, and now he faces the same supply issues with rapid antigen tests and booster shots. Meanwhile,
2: Labor is firing shots from the other side of the aisle, trying to stay consistent. They aren't jumping on his head. Rather, they're focusing on calling out his fuck-ups one by one. The public are aware that opposition leader Anthony Albanese has had the luxury of sitting on the sidelines throughout all of this, but he's trying to pitch himself as someone who could have done things much better.
1: However, there's a lot more at play than the two major parties. Clive Palmer's still sniffing around. The Greens might be snagging a few more votes as climate action begins to enter the mainstream. We've got the unions, we've got the National Party. And, of course, we've got Pauline Hansen. To cover it all in this one episode would be impossible, which is why the Batuta Advocate have decided to put together a special podcast series for all of you out there that follow politics but don't necessarily get it, or who don't really follow politics but would like to. We're introducing Decode, the Batuta Advocate's politics podcast series. Each week we'll decode the political landscape for our listeners. We'll break down all the political language you hear, but you don't quite get and get skimmed over quite quickly. It's not just you. Australian politics is designed to keep everyday people in the dark The lower house, the upper house, the lobby group, the staffers, the campaigners The pollsters, the media, preferences, it goes on and on and on Our democracy isn't exactly the most transparent thing out there
2: So stay tuned for Decode For no bullshit interviews with politicians, political commentators and Canberra operators As well as weekly episodes dissecting the election news cycle We'll decode this
0: election from top to bottom But first up Let us decode the summer that was.
1: Yeah, it's been a big, big few months for most people and it's been a big few months for the news cycle as well, as as you probably know, which has been receiving fuel from our politicians on a daily basis. But it's probably useful to provide a bit of a background to where we're at now and how we got there before this hectic summer of headlines and COVID cases. It actually kind of looked like maybe we were on the way out of this thing, didn't
0: it? It did. I mean in reality 2021 was a bit of a repeat of the year before and people were looking ahead to 2022 with a bit of optimism. Yes, yeah, so we're a couple
2: of months of relatively covid-free life there for a while especially out here in western Queensland but coming out of delta our eyes seemed to peel off the daily press conferences and the majority of stuff that we were hearing about on the covid front was vaccine skepticism which had been stoked by our leaders to suit their political agendas.
1: Yeah, obviously the Prime Minister had refused to hose down concerns about the AstraZeneca vaccine and constantly changed timelines at the beginning, which kind of made people... A little bit anxious to get the jab. The leader of the nation uh, playing into medical scepticism.
0: Yes, I think that was a big one. Uh, It frustrated a lot of people with with it seeming like the Prime Minister was trying to drum up scepticism to slow down the rollout of the jab because the government hadn't organised enough for us. Here in Queensland, it didn't help with the Chief Health Officer, Jeanette Young, saying she didn't want people to die of the vaccine instead of COVID. No,
2: I do not want under 40s to get AstraZeneca. because they are at increased risk of getting the they're rare, it is rare, but they're at increased risk of getting that rare clotting syndrome. We've seen um, up to 49 deaths in the UK from that syndrome. I don't want an 18 year old in Queensland dying from a clotting um, illness who, if they got COVID, Probably wouldn't die.
0: And obviously with a closed border for so long, there wasn't enough of a hurry for Queenslanders to go out and get immunised. Yes, Alba didn't do much either. It was left up to
2: Jackie Lambie to rip in and tell these people to get a bit of perspective and get on with things.
1: You have a right to choose. You don't have a right to put vulnerable people's lives at risk. You don't have that
2: right. Here's the thing. Being held accountable for your own actions isn't called discrimination. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult.
1: That's right as being an adult. It's putting others before yourself. And that's what this country's supposed to be about. Powerful, powerful words there by Jackie Lambie. We still actually haven't cracked 90% double doses up here in Queensland, only at 88.1%. New South Wales and Victoria, they're up around 95. Obviously, they've had a bit more urgency down there. Western Australia, similar to us, citizens of the Labour Fortress drag the chain on vaccination numbers. They're well below 90 as well.
2: Well, they are a docile people down there, Wendell.
1: They march to the beat of their own drum.
0: Anyway, that was where we got to in late November, where a bit of vaccine hesitancy was one of the biggest issues in the news on the COVID front. The Omicron variant was just getting a bit of a random mention at the bottom of a few news articles, and everyone in Australia was thinking that 2022 was going to be our year, our first year outside of COVID. We were talking submarines, we were talking about angry French presidents, we were talking about the National Party punching on over net zero so that Scott Morrison could fly over to Glasgow and tell the world leaders that this government definitely agrees that climate change is a real threat.
1: We spent about two weeks, it felt like, every day following the National Party bickering about not agreeing to the terms of a net zero target. Uh, Every day, Canavan was popping up, Barnaby was popping up, saying they're eventually going to get there, and they did after a two hour long party room meeting on a Sunday. Tough work for them there. Barnaby Joyce said the party had agreed to a process to support the net zero target dependent on cabinet signing off on a package that would protect regional economies. And didn't actually spell out anything that's going to protect regional economies there, just wants to protect them, that's all.
2: No, but they were glorious times, Wendell, and that obviously something that is going to be churned up every few days with all the parties arguing internally and externally about climate policy going into this election. Yeah,
0: Scotty was getting rinsed ahead of the climate summit, and then when he was there, he ended up getting rinsed for his handling over the French submarine deal, which became the biggest story to actually come out of Glasgow. So let's talk about AUKUS, which stands for Australia, UK and US. It's a trilateral security pact between those three countries, Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, one that detailed their military positions regarding the Indo-Pacific region. It was announced on the 15th of September 2021 under the pact, the US and the UK would help Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines, who knows what for.
1: But before all that, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had actually already signed a deal for Australia to pay upwards of 90 billion Aussie dollars to get a handful of French submarines. This all changed in September 2021 in a joint press conference where Joe Biden forgot our Prime Minister's name and revealed that we were scrapping the French deal and signing one with the UK and America for an estimated $171 billion. Remember the TV screens Mm. on the side of Scotty. Very, very very
0: powerful imagery. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under.
2: Anyway, the French President Emmanuel Macron then spat the dummy over the handling of this change of direction and while everyone was in Glasgow to discuss you know climate change and other basket weaving activities he publicly accused Scott Morrison of lying to him about his plans to commit to the previous deal with the French.
1: Do you think he lied to you? I don't think I know. Yeah there was a lot of outrage a lot of people very uh, angry that we'd upset the French didn't like that at all but in this political climate it seems like that was actually a fair while ago. Quite some time. Scotty then came back to Australia to see his closest state premier and ally Gladys Berejiklian rolled by a corruption inquiry. She was replaced by the millennial upstart Dominic Perrottet, a man that had a very different plan for how to deal with COVID. As the new New South Wales premier and his team were posting some beers in an eastern suburbs of Sydney pub, Perrottet said, "We can't live here like a hermit kingdom on the other side of the world. We want returning Australians to come back." We are leading the nation out of this pandemic. In other words, let it rip.
2: Yes, aged aged well those words, didn't they? They opened up down there and cast aside their restrictions as the case numbers were exploding. And then, as a lot of office people were clocking off for the year and preparing to unwind after a brutal four-month lockdown, rip it did.
0: So we ripped into our summer of Omicron, cases began exploding across New South Wales and Victoria, and all of a sudden outbreaks began popping up everywhere. As it stands, WA is the only state currently trying to stick to the initial elimination model with closed borders and lockdowns, and they've just announced that the closed borders will go on indefinitely, probably through this election.
2: Yeah, and Queensland has made peace with the virus, it seems, after locking the gates on outsiders for so long... We have hockey sticked in case numbers and joined the rest of the nation in adjusting to this, quote, new reality."
1: ...that the rest of the
2: world has been dealing with for a couple of years now.
1: Not like we learned anything from the likes of the UK and the US and Europe, did we?
0: No, no, it doesn't seem like we did. Because as we rolled into Christmas and the New Year... ...all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people were going down to this virus... ...and our testing system was fucked. People couldn't get an RAT for love of money. PCR tests were taking up to a week to come back. And early strains on the health system were beginning to show...
1: Yeah, and this was uh, uh, probably another classic example of our government's reactionary nature. Experts were saying, and they'd been warning for ages, that this was coming, we needed to be prepared, and we needed to get on top of it. And what did our government do? Fuck all. On top of this, Prime Minister Morrison cooked the chook again when he tried to claim that his wife Jenny was able to pop down to the shops and pick up a few rats, no dramas at all. That was a couple of months ago, and that was an alternative reality. They were living in there.
2: Well, who in Christ knows where Scott Morrison got that chook from because there were certainly none at the supermarket because we started to see the effects of this new reality, this let it rip mentality on our supply chains and our health systems. Hospitals were clogged and there was no more
0: dancing. Of course, with the added insult of there being no stimulus packages for any businesses that have had to shut down as a result of this Omicron wave.
1: Yeah, then there were a lot of interesting new arguments around lockdowns versus opening up because it seems like a shortage of truck drivers is one of the major choke points, shortage of uh, essential workers. Unions were saying that up to 50 of drivers of trucks were out of action at some point, similar situation with supermarkets. To combat this, there'd also been a changing of rules regarding isolation from 14 to 7 days. Essential workers were allowed out of isolation the moment they stopped showing symptoms and the rules for close contacts have changed.
2: And to throw some more cats amongst the pigeons, children were touted as being the solution to, you know, our nation's forklift driver shortage. Mm.
1: Yes, Scott Morrison offering up a uh, policy which would allow 16-year-olds to drive forklifts to try and solve these supply chain issues.
2: Yeah, yeah, Common sense.
1: Well, they do do it in the UK, don't they? You can drive a forklift at 16. Mate, you can drive a
2: four-ton truck on your L plates when you're 16. So what's a forklift in a dog food factory? It's
0: the cause of one in six deaths in workplaces around Australia, but one of the biggest political issues have been around the supply of rats and the cost of them. In other countries, they are free. Even in the US, a country not really well known for providing affordable or even free healthcare. In response to this, Scott Morrison said up to ten rapid antigen tests will be made available for concession card holders over the next three months at selected pharmacies, with no more than two a week, I believe. And then he and the Treasurer came
2: out to say that he didn't want to undermine the free market. Old can-do capitalism. There, Clancy, you big dumb lefty. We've got the likes of uh, Jerry Harvey, Rosalind Kogan, Woolies and Coles making millions and millions of bucks of what is essentially a public health care issue which kind of goes
1: against the last few decades of mainstream thinking on health. Yeah, particularly in this country. And on the other side of politics, Anthony Albanese, the leader of the Labor Party, was uh, making a real point of going hard on this issue. He said, it's very clear... The simplest and most cost efficient way is to make these tests free and available. It's clear that the costs of the tests are dwarfed by the cost of the inaction. Obviously, talking about people being off, infecting other people, all that sort of thing. Sally McManus, the head of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the figurehead of the unions, the big boss of the unions, if you will, she came out and said, We're on the side of small business saying that they can't afford them. But unfortunately, someone has to pay for them. And in the case of the law, it's not the workers, it's the employer. As you said, in America, Clancy, they've launched an online website where you can order free rats, and they'll be delivered to your house in seven to ten days. The Biden administration has contracted for more than 420 million tests, and additional contracts will be awarded over the coming weeks. That's what the White House says. It's expected to pay $5.6 billion to cover the first 500 million tests.
0: That's almost half a submarine.
1: Yeah, And, I mean, obviously, we wouldn't need that many. What, $1 billion would probably cover over 100 million tests. Doesn't seem like that much money given what we've spent on other things, as you just mentioned, the submarines. But we've been promised that there is a glut of tests arriving, uh, given it appears you can get the virus again after a few months. It's probably not going to be an issue that goes away, though, is it?
2: No, Wendell. It had as much chance of disappearing as a skid mark down Clive Palmer's toilet bowl after Parmesan night at the Coulomb RSL. And no amount of Serbian anti vaxxers is going to be able to change that, I don't think. Didn't that little Australian Open
0: drama backfire on Scotty in the end? Yes, upon arriving in Melbourne for the Australian Open, the world number one tennis player Novak Djokovic was unceremoniously met at the airport at 4.30am by Border Force and told that he wasn't going anywhere. All of the vac stuff aside, his visa was cancelled after he arrived on Australian soil and Scott Morrison was quick to fire out a tweet saying rules are rules.
1: Yeah, then we had the better part of a week of Novak's headlines dominating the news cycle in what seemed to be a bit of a blatant attempt to distract from the rat shortage and the supply chain issues that we just mentioned. Djokovic successfully had the decision overturned in court initially before the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, after a suspicious amount of time, came out and tore up the visa again. Yes, using his
2: ministerial discretion, he said, off you go, Novak. Hawke said it was in the interest of health and good order grounds. So make what that of you, Will.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Novak, of course, went back to court to try and get that overturned. No luck. And it was back off to Serbia for him. And it looks like he won't be able to come back here for three years unless they change that ruling.
2: True. And this issue, too, was used as a smokescreen, too, to pretty much cover up uh, Scott Morrison's new uh, anti-troll laws, which are aimed to... To demask trolls on the internet, uh, you know, to open them up for uh, defamation proceedings to be brought against them, which it's legislation aimed at making the owner of such Twitter handles as fuck da liberals very
0: nervous fuck the Liberal 666, fuck the Liberal 69. Those blokes could be unmasked very soon and they could be made to pay for their rude comments.
1: Mm, You hate to say it, but it's worked very well as a smokescreen. It is, it is. But, you know, politicians are in the public eye. I think uh, there's a few people who think that they get what's coming their way. Really?
0: Then we had the Grace Tame photo shoot last week, which really wasn't a political issue, but seemed to get everyone fired up.
1: Yeah, Murdoch media commentator and former Liberal staffer Peter Van Onselen typified the sentiment from one, sector of the population best, with his searing opinion piece titled, Grace Tame, if your disdain for the Prime Minister is so great, why go? And he's talking about that Australia Day luncheon that she attended. A lot of older Australians were hitting out at the Australian of the Year. And then a lot of younger Australians were asking the question that why should she smile for this bloke that she clearly thinks has failed her and people like her. So there was a bit of a debate around that, which kind of occupied a couple of days at the back end of last week there.
2: Well, for a journalist, Wendell, Peter lives in a very, very suspiciously large house in Sydney's Blue Ribbon Vaucluse area. So make of that what you will.
0: we are going to go easy on PBO. He might be a potential guest for the Decode podcast even if he is trying to get clicks by wading into the pointless culture wars that get us nowhere.
1: Yeah, I'm sure he'll be popping up in a few more headlines over the next couple of months. But all of that that we've just spoken about has led us to the point where it seems like there's a bit of heat in everything that seems to happen now. We've had another week of hearing essential workers telling us how cooked their industries and professions are and how things just aren't getting any better no matter how many times they've voice their concerns.
0: We've got a code brown. We've gone from rat plagues to rat shortages. Our essential workers and systems are under immense stress and pressure and everyone is getting fucking sick, which is going to make this one of the more interesting political campaigns in recent times. Because as we mentioned in our interview with Charles Croucher, the election can't actually be any later than May the 21st, which is not that far
2: away. And that's why we'll be bringing you the new Decode series over the next few weeks and months to try and make sense of this campaign and all the convoluted and complicated things that make it the way it is.
1: Yeah, we'll be having a weekly recap where we'll wrap up every week in politics, breaking down the big stories, the little stories, the ones that slip through, all the bits and pieces, trying to make sense of it all. Then there'll be little bite-sized episodes focused on decoding a particular party or issue or structure that doesn't really get explained in those opinion pieces or the 6pm news, all that sort of stuff, like how voting preferences work, and what a big old donkey vote means on election day. The origin of the Liberal Party, the origin of the National Party, the origin of the Labor Party, and how a smart tree was responsible for its founding probably about 150 years ago.
0: There'll be interviews with politicians. We'll invite them on to decode to desperately humanise themselves in the final moments before, I guess, the Australian public decides whether or not they sit on 250,000 to 500,000 taxpayer dollars a year to sit down there in Parliament House and have their rent paid for them. We'll have them on here. We'll be talking to all sides of politics, and we'll be discussing all sides of politics. So we'll keep you pretty covered for the political content over the next few months, and we'll reiterate once again, this is not for the political nerds. This is for the quiet Australians, and this is for the everyday voters who don't know what the fuck's going on.
1: So we hope you've enjoyed today's show, and you'll be joining us again in a couple of days' time, where we'll decode the origin of the Australian Labor Party.
2: Don't forget to subscribe or follow to the new feed under the name Decode, where you'll be able to find all those shows we just spoke about. Look it up or click the link in the show notes.
1: Anyway, that's all we've got for you on this show. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Let's decode.